time for another episode of Occam's Razor, a podcast about the unexplained. Brought to you on podcast radio with your host, Jim Birchall. For D.B. Cooper, in his simplest terms, he uh, appears on a new Netflix uh, show that's just come out in the past uh, few weeks called D.B. Cooper, Where Are You?, which is uh, streaming uh, pretty solidly around the world. I think it reached as far as uh, number two on the Netflix charts. Uh, it's a four-part series which delves into the mystery of D.B. Cooper. We've had on Eric on before, uh, speaking about his experience uh, in the case. Um, he's reached the point where he's the go-to guy uh, in the media and he's making a lot of appearances and his profile has has gone up considerably um, since the Netflix show has come on and it highlights his work uh, around the D.B. Cooper case and his involvement in, in even things like CooperCon and the whole culture and ethos of this, well, unexplained riddle. So first off, how are you, Eric? I'm doing very well, Jim. How are you? Excellent, mate. Where are we? Uh, where are you today? Where Where are we calling in from? I well, I live in uh, the Scottsdale, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona region. So I'm, uh, I believe, I'm 19 hours behind you folks out there in New Zealand. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's. I love, I love the time travel aspect of that. I'm sitting here on a uh, Sunday morning at at home, and and you're in Scottsdale, Arizona. Still blows my mind. And it's, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the middle of uh, winter down there and it's the middle of summer up here. So it is. Very I understand yes. had, there's been some pretty extreme heat. I mean, I, I know Arizona is a hot place anyway, but it's it's uh, been sort of inordinate, hasn't it? Um, the heat wave sweeping the US and Europe and stuff like that. Yeah, I think as far as the US is concerned, it's been uh, unusually hot. I have to say that as far as Arizona is concerned, it's certainly been hot, but I wouldn't characterize it as, you know, anything that's extreme. 2020, you know, was a very very brutal year here in Arizona. But um but you know, I think we've largely dodged the bullet as far as anything earth shattering, at least as far as Arizona's concerned. Obviously, the rest of the United States and a good portion of Europe, it's a different story. But uh we're we're holding on. We're doing okay uh, over here in Arizona. Good to hear. I could use some of that heat coming this way, actually. It's probably not gonna get much about twelve or thirteen Celsius today. So it's uh, a little bit of nip in the air, but that's okay. Now, the, as I said, the, the show, D.B. Cooper, where are you? What's been the reaction? Because obviously, um, you know, it, it's been pretty well received. There's a lot of people uh, vested in the D.B. Cooper mystery, uh, as it were, so much so, as I mentioned, it's spiraled into a phenomenon. Um, and you see things like the Cooper Con and that sort of stuff, um, where, where people come together and share their thoughts and ideas, citizen sleuths, people who just have a big interest in the case, that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, the, the four part series, I was, um, I don't want to say it left me with more questions and answers because a lot of the questions were, you know, um, you know, solidified to me. Um, there's still a bit of debate over who DB Cooper, uh, was, um, the fellow, uh, Bob Rackstraw seems to be the, the suspect that, um, the mainstream has kind of focused on. He's, he's no longer with us. Um, and he, was sort of put on the spot a little bit by investigative reporter um, Tom Colbert, who who um, accosted him, probably his best way to put it, about nine or ten years ago now. 
um, and, and, you know, came to him with his evidence and, um, you know, and Rackstraw sort of gave it, we didn't give an answer, did he? So um, we're still sort of a little bit in the dark in that, in that respect. You feature prominently uh, on the series. Um, what, first of all, what was it like working on the series and, and what angle did they come to you with? Uh, first of all, working with, uh, uh, with them was outstanding. Fullwell 73, uh, James Corden owns the company, uh, based in London. They've got a, uh, an office obviously in LA as well. Uh, but they approached me about taking part in this, uh, sometime last year, I want to say maybe 13 or 14 months ago. And, uh, I had my questions. I wanted to know kind of what it was about. And, and, you know, they gave me a, a, a good idea of what it w- was about and as much as they let it be known that this isn't so much a, a docu-series that tries to you know really kind of dig into the evidence per se and and you know come up with a definitive answer with respect to who db cooper was it's really more about the people like myself and others who are investigating the case and trying to figure out who this guy is and sort of the cult following that has has taken hold in the last 50 plus years since the skyjacking took place. And the, the vehicle, the vehicle that they used to really tell the story centered around an investigator named Thomas Colbert, as you've referenced before, and his suspect, a guy named uh, Robert Rackstraw. And of course, Rackstraw is no longer around, as you noted before. Uh, you know, Rackstraw was looked at by the FBI in the late 70s. He was eliminated uh, by the FBI at that time. I've looked at Rackstraw at length. I'm 100% convinced that Robert Rackstraw was not D.B. Cooper. Uh, but uh, Thomas Colbert has a different perspective, <laughs> a different opinion about it. So a good portion of this docuseries, you'll see profiles you know, Colbert and his and his team's efforts to essentially prove that Rackstraw uh, was Cooper. And then you've got a few of us, uh, you know, again, myself uh, being a, a, a big part of that, that uh, we're really, I think, sort of speaking truth to this this whole thing. Uh, you know, the evidence, I think, is crystal clear that Rackstraw was not uh, D.B. Cooper, but uh, so I was I was pleased to, to be a part of the show. I thought I was fairly represented in the show. In fact, I thought everybody was fairly represented in the show. Everybody had a chance to, to have their say. And uh, so it's I think it's well worth a listen. It's been well received. I think that the the, uh, the numbers that uh, indicate as much as you noted, it uh, reached uh, two or three. It opened up at two or three in the world and as well as in the United States. Uh, and at least for the first week, it, uh, you know, was hanging in that top 10 there. I may have drifted out of the top 10 now on Netflix, uh, but, uh, very well received. Uh, I've received an enormous amount of outreach on the part of people globally that have seen it, uh, asking questions, putting forward theories, new suspects, things of that nature. So, uh, it's really a big shot in the arm as far as uh, D.B. Cooper and the and D.B. Cooper's profile, not only in the United States, but globally. Mm. And when you have, um, you know, obviously media attention, do you get targeted yourself uh, by kind of citizen sleuths, people with their own ideas? Do they come to you as well and say, look, I think this, this is what happened? Yeah, I get I get quite a bit of that. Yeah. And I welcome it. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, Jim, I think that that's... I mean, there's there's a, a real possibility that's what ends up happening 
it's it's entirely possible that db cooper is no longer alive uh but that he has family that doesn't know that he was db cooper the family uh, may not even be familiar with db cooper but then they see something like this netflix docuseries or something on the history channel or some other thing uh that uh you know triggers a, a light bulb in their mind and they're like hey you know what this is interesting this sounds like grandpa joe you know <laughs> and the next thing you know you know they may they may well reach out to someone like me and they have some information that uh, i recognize is critical and there you go so I'm, I'm always kind of crossing my fingers that that actually happens at some point but uh it, thus far it hasn't happened as far as i know but we'll see you know, we'll yeah. see if it happens. Now, the thread uh, that Colbert sort of went down, as, as we aforementioned, um, was the Rob Rob Rackstraw uh, theory. He seemed to base, well, this is my opinion that I gleaned anyway, he seemed to base a lot of that on the identical picture, uh, the fact he had a criminal, you know, a minor criminal record. Um, he, he may or may not have murdered someone. We don't know that. That's still a bit yeah. up in the air, obviously, which, which yeah. kind of changes the game a little bit. Um, and his experience with, you know, in Vietnam and, and perhaps had some ties to, to CIA or at least CIA operations and stuff like that. Um, then we had the, the fellow come on. I, sorry, I can't quite find his name in my notes, but he came on and mentioned the he was a code breaker, a, a, a cryptographer, a cipher sort of a guy, didn't he? Um, yes. And he, he pulled out a bunch of numbers and a bunch of C's that it was seven C's that added up to 21, which was part of the unit um, he was involved in, um, which it seemed like a bit of a long bow to me. Um, it seemed you used a, a very interesting, um, uh, well, phrase I thought was confirmation bias. Um, yeah. Given, yeah. I mean, and, and I was kind of of, well, I was along the way you were thinking as well in the sense that, a lot of these people have been stuck on the case for so long. It happens when you're, you know, a police detective or a journalist or something like that. That you um, tend to look for things that aren't there. Is that kind of the the theme you were, you know, trying to euphemistically put out there? Just with the confirmation. That's, that's right. I think that's. I think that's a fair statement. I think that's exactly <laughs> right. I think there's an awful lot of confirmation bias there. You know, Rackstraw was an interesting guy, and I wouldn't say that he had a light criminal record. I would say it was actually pretty heavy criminal record. I mean, he had he had been in and out of uh, he had been in and out of jail um, a couple of times, uh, and you know had gone to jail for writing a you know significant amount of uh, bad checks, uh, faked his own death, uh, stole an airplane. Uh, you know, uh, embellished his record or lied on his uh, lied with respect to his experience in the military, United States military, ended up getting kicked out of the U.S. military. So it was really kind of, uh, you know, he had some big run ins with the law there. But, uh, you know, that doesn't mean that the guy's D.B. Cooper. And the important thing that I tried to point out there is that the guy did his time. I mean, he went to prison, he did his time and, and he paid his debt to society and that's it. And, you know, as far as I'm aware and, and as far as anybody's aware, everybody's aware, there's, there's nothing, uh, you know, for the better part of the last 40 years of Rackstraw's life to indicate that he was a foul, ran afoul of the law at all anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, he seemed to be a pretty straight shooting guy, kind of got his life together. So then, of course, he just gets ambushed by Colbert and his group. 
that uh, we're trying to essentially pin this thing on him. And, uh, you know, you see in the documentary series, there's one thing that I one scene that I think was very telling there. And it's uh, relates to uh, Colbert effectively trying to like bribe Rackstraw to buy the guy off, offering him money to quote unquote tell his story. You got it. 20 grand. And, you know, I've got my attorney saying that, uh, you know, this thing could lead to, you know, $400,000 or something to that effect, you know, some exorbitant sum of money. But give Rackstraw credit because he turned it down and said no. And if you listen carefully on three separate occasions during that particular scene, he says, I'm not D.B. Cooper. You know, I wasn't D.B. Cooper. I wasn't D.B. Cooper. So actually, Rackstraw did outright deny being D.B. Cooper on there. Mm -hmm. Of course, later on in the docuseries, you know, Colbert and his his, uh, you know, group, you know, insists that he's never, you know, he's never denied being Cooper. Well, we have it right there on tape, him denying being D.B. Cooper. Mm. So, um, you know, it's things like that that I find a little bit frustrating and frankly, intellectually uh, uh, dishonest. And then referencing this code breaker guy, um, it's just, it was crazy. I mean, it was very tortured, this methodology that he ended up concocting that apparently, uh, you know, could be applied to these letters that Cooper apparently wrote that, you know, amounts to what they were saying was a confession to being D.B. Cooper on the part of Rackstraw. Well, I thought they brilliantly, the, the, the folks that uh, were, you know, producing the documentary, they, they brilliantly had somebody, a true crypto analyst on there who also said that he managed to uh, essentially apply the same kind of methodology and get the letter to read, I am SpongeBob SquarePants. <laughs> and it, I think it really illustrated the, the point brilliantly that, you know, you know, with enough creativity and frankly tortured methodology, you can get the damn things to say anything. And that's exactly what happened there. So I think that there is absolutely zero credibility uh, that that uh, that we can place in in their quote unquote code breaker, you know, methodology and, and ultimately results. Short of it becoming kind of a pile on against um, you know their their investigation. What's um, what change? What changed? What eliminated Rackstraw for you is the first thing, and secondly, I thought it was a bit. Well, the whole thing was over the top, the, the kind of the ambush, as we talked about. But there was a guy sort of wearing, had a gun and all this sort of carry on. A private security firm went with them, I think, um, that sort of stuff. And I thought, yeah, it's becoming a bit Hollywood, a bit theatrical, isn't it? So what, what eliminated, you know, Rackstraw for you? What's the, what's the main, you know, decide well, for you? I- I think the first thing it's important to note is the FBI eliminated him. So he was officially yep. eliminated. And this was again in the 70s. And uh, it's also important to note that Rackstraw looks nothing like the D.B. Cooper sketch. Mm-hmm. Now, let's, you know, obviously a sketch is a sketch and, you know, you expect there to be a little bit of variance. But I think uh, anybody who looks at it honestly says there is just no... <laughs> There's nothing there at all, no comparison at all. But one of the really big things to consider here is that according to the flight attendants, who are the only people who are aware of what was going on, they pegged Cooper's age at somewhere between 45 and 50 years of age, a middle-aged guy, 45 to 50 years of age. At the time the skyjacking occurred, Rackstraw was 28. Mm. 
The flight attendant who sat next to Cooper on the jet the entire time was 23. So we are being asked to believe that a 23-year-old flight attendant is sitting next to a guy who's five years older than her, and she is looking at him thinking he's 25 years older than her. It just doesn't pass the smell test. No. And, you know, they did ask, you know, did he, was he wearing makeup or you know, anything of that nature? And she said, no. She said that he was not wearing makeup, didn't appear to be wearing makeup or any such disguise or anything of that nature at all. So that's a really big problem as far as it goes. And I think it's also safe to assume that part of the vetting process that the FBI used in the 70s, and I guess I think I want to say this was 79, 1979, so about eight years after the skyjacking itself, seven to eight years after. I think you're right. Yeah, I, think it, I think it's safe to assume that they probably ran his picture in front of the witnesses, not only his photograph, but also probably live footage of him or, or recorded footage of him, you know, while he was in court and so forth. So they got a chance to see his mannerisms and hear him and, and see how he responded. And I, I think it's safe to assume that uh, they said, no, go, he's not the guy. So uh, there's just, there's just nothing, nothing at all that, uh, that we can point to no evidence whatsoever that indicates Bob Rackstraw, Robert Rackstraw was D.B. Cooper. And one final point that I'll make as far as this goes, uh, the story, as it's told by Thomas Colbert and his group, is that, you know, D.B. Cooper, or I should say Robert Rackstraw <laughs> and their guys, uh, you know, got in some private aircraft and flew over what's called Vancouver Lake threw $50,000 into Vancouver Lake as, <clears throat> as sort of a diversion and that that $50,000 or a portion of that $50,000 that they threw into Vancouver Lake on the night of the jump was uh, ultimately what was discovered years later uh, by a little boy along the Columbia River. Well, we can prove scientifically that that is impossible. And the way we can prove that is because uh, within the last two years, there was a scientist, a guy named Tom Kay here, whom I know quite well, who uh, analyzed some of the money that was found buried in the sand. There was part of D.B. Cooper's ransom, and he, he discovered these uh, very small organisms on the bill that are called diatoms. They're very, very small, about the size of a blood cell, so you can't see them with the naked eye. The important thing is that diatoms, this, this algae, this organism blooms in the Columbia River and blooms in the lakes and stuff around that area, but they're seasonal. So there's a different version of diatom in the spring versus in the winter. D.B. Cooper jumped in the winter. He jumped in November, the winter here in the United States, of course. Sure. Uh, but the version of diatom that was found on the bill was the summertime version from like a, the month of June. So that money, D.B. Cooper's money, was indeed exposed to that, that the water in that area there. But it was exposed apparently about six or seven months after the jump. So if he had thrown the money in the drink in the water on the night of the jump, which is what the story is, it would have been obviously flooded with diatoms from that time of year as well. And it wasn't. So again, we can scientifically prove that the story is not true. That's fascinating, actually. Um, 
the, I mean, and also just in, in being unscientific, if you'd, if you'd asked for $200,000, would you throw a quarter of it away as a diversion? I mean, personally, I wouldn't. Um, it seems like <laughs> the whole thing's hard enough. You've got to jump out of a plane um, and you've decided to throw $50,000, you know, into a, and let's be fair, we've spoken about this before. Um, it wasn't exact science, you know, nobody had a GPS or anything. He didn't, you know, know exactly where he was. Um, he probably had a fair idea, but at the same time, you know, it's, there's no, there's no science behind, you know, the actual, um, the landing spot or anything like that. And I found that quite amusing that they, they trumpeted these, you know, associates that helped him and met him at a landing spot and all this sort of carry on. And, and people have speculated that, you know, he may not have made it to any particular landing spot, you know, um, and, and no one really knows when he jumped, do they? That's, I think we talked about that last time. I mean, we've got a fair idea. Um, yeah. But in terms of specifics and the fact that it was during a storm and, you know, all that sort of thing, there's a lot of variables there, right? There are a lot of variables. We do have a very good idea of when he jumped. We know that he jumped approximately 8.13 p.m. Uh, is it uh, so that we specific? That. Yeah. Yeah, we know that specifically. And uh, that's – and, and – you know, I guess where there's a little bit of room for, for uh, um, I guess, uh, uncertainty, it relates to precisely where the jet was at that time. There has been some discussion about that. The, you know, the FBI has, a, a, you know, an official flight path, what we call the FBI flight path that depicts what they considered to be the flight path that the jet took. Uh, I'm of the opinion that that flight path is slightly askew. I think it's wrong. I think that the jet was actually about seven or eight miles west of where they think the jet was. I think that there was some confusion on the part of authorities in the uh, days afterwards as they cobbled the radar data and stuff together to craft this flight path. I think there was some mix up between some of the, the chase planes because there was uh, three uh, Air Force chase planes uh, that were essentially following the jet. They never made eye contact, but there were a couple that were about coincidentally seven or eight miles to the east of the airliner. And there was one that was about five or six miles behind. Uh, so I think that there was a little bit of uh, somebody made a mistake, simply put. Yeah. So I, I think that ultimately DB Cooper jumped uh, very near where that money was found, where $6,000 was found uh, in 1980. Um, so I, and, and again, where the FBI has said that they believe that he jumped, puts him a good, you know, 25 miles or so as the crow flies from where the money was found. And it's physically impossible for the money have, uh, to have worked its way to the, its eventual, you know, uh, finding spot or burial spot. So, um, you know, so that again, the FBI made some mistakes and, and I referenced that in the in the, in the docu-series, but, uh, you know, as far as Rackstraw is concerned, I think that they were spot on uh, as far as uh, eliminating him as a, as a suspect, and, and they moved on a long time ago. But, you know, the problem is you get people that, uh, you know, they have their favorite suspects and they just can't let go. And there's, you know, I think oftentimes a financial motive. There's, you know, this desire to be the individual who gets, you know, globally recognized as the person who solved the mystery of, you know, D.B. Cooper. And, uh, you know, it's not as simple as that, you know, <laughs> we but can't the, just go out there and announce that we've solved that you got to prove it. And, and they haven't. Yeah, for sure. With the, um, 
the earlier documentary, the one that came out, was it 2016, I think it was? The one with, yes. with Jim Forbes and, and, and Colbert and all that sort of thing. Uh, Forbes mentioned that him and Colbert don't, don't speak anymore. They don't get along because they reached that point where the FBI guy in charge, I forget his name, um, you probably know better than me, and they, they reached that point, didn't they? And they said, look, you know, this, we'll, we'll take all your evidence on board, but we're not, you know, we, we're not entirely convinced um, of the whole thing. And the whole thing kind of just just petered out a little bit. And did it become a case where Forbes sort of accepted the FBI's version of things, whereas Colbert sort of thought there was something nefarious, you know, they were hiding things from him, that sort of stuff. Is that, is the way, is that the way you look at it? That is correct. Uh, by the way, I know both Jim and I know Tom Colbert. Uh, I've talked with you know both of them multiple times. Yeah, uh, I know Tom Colbert better than I know Jim, but I've I have you know I have talked with these guys. Uh, so I have, and I have some personal dealings with Tom in particular, which didn't really make it into the documentary, uh, but the docu series. But I thought Jim uh, made a comment in that 2016 History Channel documentary that again was also brilliant. He, he said, you know, after they had, you know, the guys that had investigated the case on the show basically came to the conclusion that Rackstraw was not D.B. Cooper. You could see that Colbert was dejected. And I think it's also fair to say that Jim was dejected to some degree. But Jim turned to Colbert and basically said, you know, you don't invite these guys to, you know, do due diligence with respect to our investigation and look into this stuff. And then when you don't like what they have to say, ignore it. Mm. You know, that's just not being intellectually honest. And as Jim noted, uh, you know, the the investigators that they had on that show uh, were privy to inside FBI information that others weren't privy to. And having seen that and everything else, they came to the conclusion that Rackstraw was not the guy. So there was a parting of ways between Jim and Tom. And, uh, but that's, you know, that seems to be Tom's MO to be honest with you, because he's, you know, I've, I've, you know, he, we, we've had some, I've had some conflicts with the guy, you know, and I, and I just, I, you know, I, at the end of the day, I just think what it comes down to is if you don't agree with his assertions, uh, then he just, you know, he attacks you. That's yeah. basically it. Everybody's, you know, he, he can't accept that he's wrong and and that there's just no evidence to back it up. He, he makes it personal. He attacks you personally. You know, you're part of some big conspiracy and scheme. The FBI is in on it and everybody else. And, you know, frankly, it's uh, he's not the first guy to kind of play that hand uh, in life when it comes to something he's not happy with. And I'm sure he won't be the last guy. So there you go. Yeah, he, I mean, he certainly seemed pretty pissed off, to, to put it bluntly, didn't he? Um, the, yeah. The cards didn't fall his way, as it were. That's right. Yeah, well, do you think he'll keep um, sort of his dogged pursuit up? Um, does the whole thing need fresh eyes? I suppose it's part of the, the citizen sleuth kind of movement that you do get fresh eyes looking at these things, don't you? Um, and I think one of the... Their, their counter arguments were that the FBI just sort of can't be bothered with it anymore. But, um, you know, the, it's an embarrassment for the FBI, you know, if you, if you think about it, um, they don't like leaving cases unsolved, particularly ones as high profile as, as this, um, you know, I would have thought over time that they would unofficially, they're probably, you know, I mean, officially they're probably not, you know, the case is closed as it were and waiting on new information, but you know, there's, there's going to be people within that organization that are still looking at it. 
I just think, you know, as I said, the profile is so large that it's probably not something they look at every day unless they get new, you know, information, but there's someone's always going to have an interest in, in pursuing this, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And, um, there's a, um, a former special agent, FBI special agent, a guy named Larry Carr, whom I know well, uh, who actually headed up the D.B. Cooper investigation uh, from, I want to say, about 2007 up till, you know, basically when he retired, which was just a few months ago. And, uh, and I had talked with him about that. And, yeah, while the, you know, as of 2016, the case is sort of a you know, administratively closed or officially administratively closed yes. as a practical matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there was actionable evidence or something of that nature that came along, the FBI would definitely look at it, you know, would look into it. And when I say actionable evidence or something actionable, I'm talking, you know, a parachute or money or, or something of that nature, you know, people with just theories aren't going to cut it anymore. So, and I think it's fair to say that, you know, after, you know, nearly 51 years at this point, uh, they've more or less just come to the conclusion that there is, it's not likely going to be solved. There's no sense spending, spending any more public resources on this thing. And uh, as a practical matter, Cooper is probably no longer alive, you know, mm-hmm. even if he survived. And I do believe he survived, you know, if he was 45 to 50 years of age, uh, he would be about a hundred years old today. And, yep. you know, while it's certainly possible that he's still alive, it's, you know, actuarially speaking, unlikely. Mm. No, I, I, look, I'm in complete agreement with you. I think that's, yeah. If he survived the jump, which look, obviously you think he does. Um, some people think he didn't even devo- survive the jump. Um, I found it quite humorous when they found the uh, piece of nylon, which they instantly attributed to a parachute. Um, but they also mentioned that there'd been some loggers, I think, working in the area who um, use, you know, slings and stuff like that. So I thought that was, you know, out of all the things they were clutching at straws, that was probably top of the pile. Yeah. <laughs> it's, again, uh, without getting in the weeds of sort of the history of all this stuff in Colbert, it's just amazing how they get shot down in 2016 and then miraculously there's this new piece of evidence that develops in the form of this piece of a parachute. This is just the way the guy rolls, you know, that's, that's just what I've, you know, that's my opinion. And that, that does does appear to be the case as far as it goes, you know, of course uh, they haven't publicly released the location of the quote unquote find uh, and they're not going to for obvious reasons because people will just tear it apart and, and be able to dispute that as well. But, uh, yeah, they did send the material, whatever the hell it was, to the FBI. And the FBI apparently looked at it and laughed at it and didn't want to have a damn thing to do with it. And, uh, you know, so there you go. <laughs> That's right. Is this something that they – I think they mentioned they'd spent a couple hundred thousand dollars, which seems conservative, um, actually, given the given the scope of it. Um, is this something that's self-funding or do the, this investigative team, do they rely on, you know, money from TV, from production companies and stuff like that to, to fund this thing? Well, Tom Colbert has self-funded his investigation. At least that's my understanding. Uh, apparently, a number of the people that make up his cold case team do it voluntarily so they're not receiving any kind of compensation. Uh, I would imagine that he's lost money that he, you know, obviously I'm sure he received some sort of appearance fee, 
you know, with this Netflix uh, docu-series and, and presumably in 2016 with the History Channel documentary as well. Uh, but it's not going to be the kind of money that offsets uh, what he's apparently invested into this thing. So, um, but you know, that's the, that's the path that the guy opted to, uh, to walk and uh, you know, he's a big boy and that's just the way that that's just the way it goes. The new Netflix docu-series, DB Cooper, where are you? Uh, Eric, how much weight do you place in the comic book character, Dan Cooper, which a lot of people have thought, has some interesting um, parallels with with this with the skyjacker himself. Do you think Dan Cooper was a name the hijacker sort of made up, or do you think you know like a throwaway sort of thing, or do you think um, you know the, the examining the car, the comic book where this guy was a paratrooper for the French Canadian Air Force? Um, you know, do you think he was trying to tell us something? I think the name Dan Cooper was just made up. Of course, there was the uh, French Canadian slash Belgian, I guess, a comic book of the same name, Dan Cooper, that apparently uh, existed in the 1960s. I don't know that it was particularly popular, but it was out there. And some have tried to say that, you know, that that uh, perhaps uh, D.B. Cooper, whoever this guy was, kind of lifted the name off of the comic book and ran with that. But Dan's a very popular name here in the United States. Cooper's a very popular name in the United States. So it just seems really unlikely. Also, when you factor in that the, the comic book was really only available in, I think, probably Quebec, you know, I mean, or, you know, French speaking parts of Canada, uh, you know, that's that, you know, seems uh, unlikely as well that Cooper really had much to do with it. Uh, in part because, uh, by all accounts, Cooper was an American. I mean, the tie that he wore was purchased at J.C. Penney. It is in the United States. Uh, according to the flight attendants, he had no discernible accent. Uh, the skyjacking itself took place here in the United States. So there's just nothing that indicates that the guy was anything but an American who was down on his luck or whatever the case may happen to be and decided, you know what, I'm going to see if I can get 200 grand the easy way and and and, and go with it. I saw uh, on the show that they placed some weight in the fact that he asked for American currency or United States currency or something like that. Um, and, and people pointed towards, you know, why would I, an American ask for American currency? Why would they be that specific? You know, it would be something that would be assumed. Does that whole, you know, where does that sit with you, first of all? Well, first of all, there's a couple different versions of that and we're not exactly sure what he said. They referenced the phrase negotiable American currency in the docu-series. I've heard the term or I've read the term in the document circulated currency, uh, which is probably what it was because it does it's Cooper did let it be known that he didn't want brand new bills, brand new currency. He wanted stuff that was used. Uh, so uh, we're, we're a little unclear as to exactly the terminology he used. So I think it's unlikely that he actually used the term negotiable American currency. And I also think it's unlikely he used the term American currency. He probably, you know, like I said, probably just requested, you know, used cash, used yeah. currency, you know, words to that effect. But even if he did say, you know, uh, you know, used American currency or what have you, um, frankly, it would be an odd, a little bit 
odd for anybody to say. If you were Canadian, it would be a little bit odd to say because you're in the United States. If you're in America, it's a little bit odd to say because you're in the United States. So, you know, it's really, you know, regardless of who the individual is, it would be a little bit of an unusual way of phrasing it. Uh, but that said, I think it's unlikely that he used those precise words. And that's assuming that it's verbatim as well, too, because only the air hostess would have had that instruction, correct? But didn't she relay the instruction? Yeah, she did. She uh, she was told what he wanted. Then she got on the interphone and contacted one of the other flight attendants who was on the flight deck. And then she relayed the information to the pilots. And then the pilots relayed the information to Northwest Orient and then Northwest Orient related to the FBI. Okay. So you can see there's a hell of a lot of stuff going on around there. The Chinese <laughs> and, whispers you know, could have come into it, right? In the heat of the moment, you know, it's like, you know, also, so it's just, yeah. it's, it's hard to say. It's hard to say exactly what was said. Uh, so I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't be hanging a lantern or a candle on any of those things. Uh, you it's know, not something you would hold up in court anyway. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Moving forward, um, you've been in the media uh, in the US. I, I've seen a couple of, um, you made a TV appearance on one, one network, didn't you, recently? Just we've been talking about the tie and the, the clip-on tie that, that they recovered from, from D.B. Cooper. Um, and there's been some analysis on titanium and the sort of fragments attached to it. Um, you've had a bit of a uh, breakthrough in that regard, haven't you, in the, in the past, well, recently? Um, yeah. Talk, talk us through that because a lot of people are speculating that you know he may have been involved in aviation in some respect and that's how these fibers came to be on the clip-on tie um so that's what have you correct. found recently first of all that's correct uh outside of uh the media uh you know media exposure that just took place uh, within the last week uh new zealand uh is the the next group that's heard about it so it's uh, so this is new to this is hot off the press as awesome. far as uh as far as things go here, but yes, uh, yeah, of course, DB Cooper left his uh, clip-on tie on board the jet. I believe that was an uh, an accident. I don't think he intended to leave it there, but he did, um, which was of little value back in 1971. Little forensic value, uh, but in the last several years, uh, we've been able to apply. Uh, science and technology to the tie that didn't exist in, in 1971, specifically an electron microscope. And uh, in 2017, uh, the, some of the particles that were lifted off of the tie were sent to a company called Macron and Associates here in Chicago, Illinois, uh, world-class uh, group. Uh, so they know their stuff. Yeah. And they uh, looked at this, uh, these particles under electron microscope, then they identified something north of 100,000 particles uh, coming from D.B. Cooper's tie. What makes this unique is that the particles were somewhat exotic. In other words, there was an array of, of metals and specialty metals on the tie, which included titanium and certain grades of stainless steel and and uh, copper and tin and zinc and all kinds of crazy stuff, not to mention uh, a whole bunch of rare earth elements as well. 
And these are things that would be difficult to come by in 2022, not to mention 1971. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's the first thing to note. The second thing to note is that the particles that were discovered, and these are very small, some are microscopic and not visible by the, by the human eye, naked eye. Uh, the other thing that's worth noting is that they appear to be consistent with the aerospace sector. And that makes a lot of sense because uh, right out of the gate, the authorities seem to feel like Cooper probably was involved in the aircraft industry in some fashion. And that makes sense because of his knowledge and, and things of that nature. So this seemed to confirm that. So there's this gigantic list of about 100,000 particles that are on you know, Excel spreadsheets and so forth, but nobody had really taken the time to comb through at a kind of a forensic level to see what was there. <clears throat> so I decided that I had nothing better to do, so I'll go ahead and start reading through this stuff and see what I find. And what I found was very interesting. I found three specific particles of a very rare alloy. It was an alloy that was a combination of titanium and antimony. And it was of a specific, of a specific rather, specific chemical balance, titanium and antimony alloy. Uh, so there were three particles of this found on D.B. Cooper's tie. I also discovered that this very unique and very uh, rare uh, and uh, alloy was uh, gained a United States patent in the 1950s. It also gained a Canadian patent and a UK patent as well, all around the same time, you know, from the mid 50s up to like 1960. And uh, this also the, the alloy was not commercially produced and was not commercially disseminated. So apparently it was just something that was experimented with. And again, this is, in, you know, this is in addition to all the other things that are on Cooper's tie. Yeah. So what this means is that it appears that the only possible place that these three particular particles of this titanium and antimony alloy could have come from was a specific company called rem crew titanium rem crew titanium is no longer in existence they existed in the in the 50s they were bought out at the very end of the 50s by a company called crucible steel then crucible steel was bought out by a company called colt Industries. so there's been a you know a fair number of changing hands and so forth but importantly uh rem crew titanium uh, was headquartered in the in the pittsburgh pennsylvania area and they worked on specialty metals. They dealt with specialty metals and they had uh, several contracts, a lot of contracts, heavy duty contracts with uh, in the aerospace sector, Boeing specifically as well. So they created metals and so forth that were not only part of uh, commercial aircraft, but also they had military applications as well. And again, this is perfectly consistent with what's on D.B. Cooper's tie. Mm -hmm. So what this tells me, is that in all likelihood, D.B. Cooper came from Remcrew Titanium. So I believe I've identified where D.B. Cooper came from and also the specific division within the company where D.B. Cooper came from. Now, I have managed to procure a list of people who worked in that area back then, 50, 60 years ago. There is one person in particular, one person of interest in particular, the, the gentleman is no longer alive. 
uh, who checks off several of the boxes. So this person may well have been D.B. Cooper. I know that he traveled to Seattle and to Boeing and was on Boeing's floor, among other things. I haven't publicly released his name because I don't want to do that until I'm quite certain that we're dealing with with D.B. Cooper here. Uh, but that's obviously an epic, huge breakthrough. And uh, as you noted, it was just... Uh, just released publicly in the United States uh, no more than a week ago. And uh, you folks there in New Zealand are the really the second uh, people to hear about it. That's awesome. Thanks for the, uh, <laughs> thanks for the tip, yeah. man. It's, it's uh, well, that's the, the key to the box in a way, isn't it? But um, how did you get your hands on the, on the tie is the first thing? I didn't get my hands on the tie. Uh, what happened is... There was a, uh, a scientist, a guy named Tom K., who I referenced earlier. Uh, he and a, a couple of his uh, partners, colleagues, were granted special access to the tie on two separate occasions, once in 2009 and once in 2011. And they were allowed to examine the tie, remove some particles from the tie, you know, vacuum the tie a little bit and just see what they could come up with. So... Uh, it's it's this material that they pulled from the tie in 2011 specifically that ultimately was submitted six years later to McCrone Labs uh, in 2017 and was you know analyzed and and uh, again it was McCrone Labs to put together or identified these you know 100,000 plus particles on the tie in 2017. And then it was Eric Euless in 2022, throw another five years onto this thing, that actually decided to go through and start combing through this thing and seeing what was there. And I call this discovery, or I really kind of characterize this discovery as similar to what I would call commercial DNA. Just as human DNA points to a specific person, commercial DNA points to a specific company. Because in this titanium and antimony alloy, that again, that was patented in, from a specific company that does appear to uh, validate or suggest that D.B. Cooper had to have come from that company because apparently this stuff existed nowhere else in the world. Wow. That's sort of, that's a big revelation. I'm just, I'm just trying to absorb it, actually. It's... Um... What, what, what part of the, you mentioned that the guy you suspect from the, um, what was it called? REM crew, was it? That's crew. That's, that's correct. REM crew, REM titanium, crew, REM. Titanium. Uh, yeah, it's uh, spelled R-E-M hyphen C-R-U. So REM crew, oh, okay. titanium. And crew. Yeah. And again, they're no longer around. They've yep. you know been bought out and divisions have been sold off. But uh, yes. What? What led you to that guy specifically? You said he checked off a lot of the boxes. Which were those? Um, I spoke with, I got in contact with a gentleman who was actually one of the supervisors in the division that I suspected Cooper came from. Specifically, there was a division that dealt with uh, creating specialty metals and experimenting with alloys and that type of thing. So there was an 89-year-old gentleman who worked at Rem Crew uh, for many, many years there. Uh, and I got a lot of information from him and it was a very small group of men, no women, just men that were working, uh, specifically with the titanium and so forth. 
And, and I had quite a few discussions with him, uh, or actually, I think that's a mischaracterization. I want to say I had quite a few discussions with him, but I had uh, multiple discussions with him talking about uh, Cooper and what we uh, believe we know as far as Cooper and uh, asked him if there was anybody that he was aware of that kind of checked some of those boxes, meaning, you know, six foot, six foot one, somebody that would have obviously been working there and been exposed to it, somebody who would have been wearing a tie, somebody who would have actually traveled to Seattle because they did travel to Seattle uh, to work with, uh, you know, to, to discuss various metals and applications and things of this nature uh, would have been, a, you know, a certain age and that kind of thing. And there was one person of interest, I'll, I'll characterize this individual as a person of interest that was brought to my attention uh, I have been looking into this individual. He passed away. I want to say 2002. So he's been gone 20 years. Yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, from what I've seen, I've been very impressed with uh, and, and excited about the prospect of maybe this guy being the real D.B. Cooper. But having said that, um, you know, that's not good enough. I mean, I, you know, it's the kind of thing where if there's any possible way to seal the deal one way or the other, then uh, I definitely want to make that happen. Again, I don't, I don't have a horse in the race other than the truth. So if this guy's not D.B. Cooper, uh, I want to seek out the evidence that proves it so we can eliminate him as a suspect and move on to somebody else. Uh, on the other hand, if he is D.B. Cooper, then I would love to find the evidence that can prove it as well, and, and we can just call a case closed. Is it likely that you'll approach his family, or have you already gone down that route? Or? I've, I've already tried that. It's been a, it's been difficult because it doesn't appear that there's much family, if any family out there, <clears throat> pardon me. Uh, he and his wife have, have passed away. Um, I do have, I do have some secondary connections again, people who knew the person and, and so forth uh, that I'm working through right now. Um, but it's, it's going to take a little bit more time. And honestly, it's going to take me showing up at Pittsburgh and spending a little bit of time in Pittsburgh and, and kind of, you know, a little bit of that boots on the ground kind of activity to, to see what we can come up with. But, uh, I hope to know definitively one way or the other, whether this guy was DB Cooper or not sometime, uh, before the end of this year, before the end of 2022. Does it have some commercial applications from from your end? Is it something you'd you'd be in, a story you'd be interested in telling? You know, via a show like the one we've just watched. Um, I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's really. Um, honestly, it's not. I haven't really thought much about it. I mean, you know, it's. At the end of the day, if I can confirm that this guy's DB Cooper, and uh, you know, I'm inclined to to think that let's just get it out there. Let's just call yeah. up the news media, have a press conference, get it out there, and make our case. I, I'm not particularly interested in putting this thing on ice for a year while we produce a show around it or a documentary around it. Yeah. Uh, uh, but. Uh, Honestly, the opportunity hasn't presented itself, so it's it's not something I've really thought much about. I guess in the back of my mind, I always figured once we find the guy, we'll just let it be known, and and we'll just go from there. It's for the people, as it were. Yes, I suppose, I suppose that's what what that's something that makes you different, um, unique from from a lot of the citizen sleuths, as it were, is is your humility around it and the fact that you know your dogged pursuit 
of the truth if it comes to its you know eventual end you know it's um you're happy to share that you know you're happy to share your your investigation your knowledge your you know with with people it's not something you want to profit from it's um just something self self-satisfying in a way isn't it yeah, it is something that is uh, definitely self-satisfying, but um, you know, the reality of the situation is the the person, the individual or group that solves the mystery uh, is likely to cash in. I mean, there's there's yeah. no two no two bones about that. But I can I can tell you with all honesty that is not my primary motive motivating factor. I mean, I'm just, I'm genuinely interested in just figuring out who this guy was and uh, putting this thing to bed. And I know that there are a lot of people that are involved in the community that, you know, actually prefer to keep the guy a mystery because they kind of like it. They like this story of this, you know, skyjacker that got away, you know, the only unsolved skyjacking in United States history. And yeah, to be sure, there's a, there's a little bit of an allure to that as well, but uh but having said that, I've given, you know, given two options, uh, you know, one, keeping the mystery a mystery forever or two, you know, solving the case and sort of being able to kind of explore it through a different lens. I think I'll take the second option. I'd, I'd love to I'd love to solve the case, know who this guy is, be able to comb through this person's life uh, with a different lens and, and see what we can learn about what led him to pull the crime off and ultimately what he did, what happened, how he got away with it. You know, where's the rest of the money? I mean, you know, there are fascinating aspects to it uh, that I, that I think that we, we could continue to explore, you know, whether we figure out who this guy is or not. Yeah, no, that's a, it's a good way to look at it. It's a good way to look at it. Definitely. If it is proven or proven that, that this guy is DB Cooper, um, apart from the sense of satisfaction you'll get from it, is it, how will you stop? You know, how will you stop investigating when you've been chasing for something so long when you, and you get a resolution? Um, you know, is it something you'll, you'll add to a, you know, you'll, you'll become a speaker, you'll go on speaking tours, you'll write a book. What, what will happen? Do you think, or do you think you'll kind of just leave it and move on to something else? Well, I think it's one of those things, Jim, where I guess we'll just cross that bridge when we come to it. I mean, I, I uh, honestly haven't thought too much about it. I don't want to put the cart before the horse, so to speak, on this. I mean, you know, I, I think it is safe to assume that, you know, once this mystery is solved, and I do believe it will be, I'm on the record as saying I think it'll be solved by the 60th anniversary, which is now a little more than nine years away. Uh, you know, I think that these, these people, this individual, whomever is responsible, you know, uh, people are going to want to hear the story. People are, mm -hmm. you know, people are going to be fascinated with, you know, how did you figure it out? You know, what, what was it that unraveled this enigma of D.B. Cooper? Uh, so I think, you know, there would be some of that, but it's it, honestly, it's, it's not the kind of thing I've really thought much about. And I know you, you enjoy the investigative side of things um would you move on to other sort of high profile and solved cases i think so um you know one of the one case that i'm particularly fond of as well relates to the uh isabel stewart gardner museum heist which took place in boston massachusetts 1990 uh the artwork 13 the art yeah. pieces of artwork that were were ripped off from the museum uh 
are today worth somewhere between 500 million and $1 billion. Jeez. Uh, none of it's been recovered. Um, so, you know, there's that, that's a case that I've got, you know, a strong interest in as well. And I've, I've, you know, done quite a bit of research and, and investigation into that case as well. So I suppose uh, that's probably where I would be spending a, a lot of my time at that point would be focusing exclusively on that. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. That was Eric Eulis, um, who is dogged pursuit of D.B. Cooper, has made the news in recent times. Um, and part of the D.B. Cooper, where are you? docu-series on netflix it's been a pleasure as always having you on eric um and and fascinating is the only word i can really think about at the moment because it's it really is and i i really hope the um you know all your hard work comes to fruition and and you you know this, this current lead which sounds pretty promising to me um as obviously as a as a bit of a layman but um I suppose one question I would ask is, or have people asked you that the tie could it have been contaminated in any way or could it have been worn by someone else? Did he pick it up from a thrift shop or you know anything like that? I think the evidence uh, indicates that it was unlikely that it was purchased from a secondhand store. And certainly people have brought that up. Yep. And again, I think it's also important to remember that right out of the gate, the uh, you know law enforcement working with the evidence they had uh, was directed to Boeing aircraft company and uh, you know other companies involved in that aircraft sector the aerospace sector mm. and you know 40 45 years later to discover there are particles on the tie that are consistent with the aerospace sector is just too big of a coincidence in my mind, you know, the whole notion that some guy who worked at uh, the grocery store went out and bought a tie at Goodwill. And it just so happened to come from a former owner who worked at the aerospace sector, you know, it was just kind of a little bit difficult to swallow. Uh, not to mention the tie was very inexpensive. It was somewhat soiled. And, you know, I, just, I don't know that they're in the business of selling, cheap soiled items that are you know yeah. quite old like that uh we do know db cooper mm. was wearing the tie because we had witnesses seeing wearing the tie the tie was found sitting on his seat on the airplane um it's important to remember that when db cooper jumped the lights were off in the back of the plane uh the seat was dark and the tie was dark so it's very easy to see how he you know just takes the clip on tie off chucks it on the seat and he you know, dons the parachute and ties the money around and does everything he needs to do and just doesn't happen to notice this dark tie on a dark chair and a dark cabin before he jumps. And I think that's mm. ultimately what happened. So in all likelihood, the tie was his and he probably bought it new from JC Penney, you know, somewhere in the 1962 to 96, 1964 timeframe, which is when the tie was manufactured. Uh, and then of course, you know, years later, eight years later or so, 71, when he decided to skyjack the jet, he thought, you know, I'm not going to use my newest, greatest tie. I'll go with, uh, you know, this old thing that's been sitting in the drawer for a few years. And, uh, and, uh, and I think that's what happened. Where do you sit in the sense that, uh, when he's doing something so methodical that he would leave evidence behind? Well, I think it's easy to understand why somebody would uh, could accidentally leave evidence behind. He was very careful 
careful of uh, not leaving any evidence behind. You know, he smoked cigarettes. Uh, he had a book of matches and the last match was actually used uh, in that book of matches to, to light his cigarette. Uh, the, the one flight attendant went to throw that, you know, expended book of matches in the trash and db cooper actually said no and retrieved that piece of trash from her and took that with him Mm. Uh, so he seemed to go out of his way not to leave any evidence behind so you know leaving the tie behind purposely doesn't make any sense and i would argue to what end i mean what what is the benefit of leaving the tie behind what since when is it beneficial to leave you know a piece of evidence behind versus leaving no evidence behind whatsoever Moreover, you know, to what end, you know, is he trying to frame somebody? Was he trying to frame? I mean, like, how does that, how does, how yeah. does that work? You know, it just doesn't too fantastic, it just doesn't, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Just doesn't make any sense. So I think it's, it's uh, you know, let's just call it Occam's razor here. The simplest explanation <laughs> is probably the closest to the truth. And, uh, and I think the guy just leaving it behind accidentally is, is the truth of it all. I like it. Thanks for coming on, Eric. My pleasure very much. There was Occam's Razor episode 54. We're talking with Eric Eulis about D.B. Cooper. We'll catch you next time. Great. My pleasure. Thank you. Yeah.